want to read something for you. You can look at it as well in your Bibles. It will not be on the screen, but just, just listen. In Philippians 2, Paul writes this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... He says, to complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Then he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. But also, uh, excuse me, more than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. Notice that it is your mindset in Christ Jesus. Not, and he says this, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself. Look at this. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, this is an anchoring text. This is one of those things that we need to be reminded of and, and really like begin to like articulate to those times of doubt and discouragement that we face. It, it needs to be something that we remind ourselves when it comes to us being part of the body of Christ that we are reminded of this often. We've been walking through 1 Peter, and in 1 Peter we have discovered that this letter is written to the elect exiles of the dispersion. These, these people are, are sitting there in a, in a place, in a pagan culture, in a pay, pagan society. Nothing um, is going their way within culture, but everything is going their way in Christ. It's all anchored in him. And what's crazy is even though this is kind of a guide for first century followers of Jesus, it's also a playbook for us here today. Meaning, as elect exiles, we are away from our true home. I want to just, just anchor that truth in each of us. This is not your home. America is not your home. Texas is not your home. In fact, you represent your true home as an ambassador of Christ. You represent who you really are, where you're really from in Christ. And that needs to be something that, that means something in the way that you live here in this life. And so we're picking up in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. And he makes this statement right at the beginning. He says, finally, all of you. And, and so that you know, that's coming from a few weeks of us dealing with, really helping us understand um, what we do. It says, basically, we're submitting for the Lord's sake, and it gives a list of things we submit to for the Lord's sake. So as citizens in this day and age, even though this is not our home, we submit to our authorities for the Lord's sake. As employees, we submit to our employers for the Lord's sake. As wives, as husbands, we submit for the Lord's sake. And it's in view of that that he gives these things. So finally, all of you, everybody. And he gives these lists of things, these five things that we're supposed to respond with in light of what God has called us to as elect exiles. First thing he says is have unity of mind. 
Then he says, have sympathy. Have brotherly love. Have a tender heart and a humble mind. And so these five characteristics, responses as those of us who are elect exiles, who've been really changed and transformed by the, by the blood of Jesus, we have these things. And so let's just break them down one by one. The first one, unity of mind. This is a mindset. This is an attitude. This one of unity. And in fact, what's cool is how it kind of really is bookended because we've got this one, unity of mind, and the last one being a humble mind. And honestly, you can't have unity of mind without being of a humble mind. In fact, it necessitates it. If you're going to have unity, you need humility. In fact, the, the opposite would happen, right? If, if you wanted unity, but all it had was a bunch of prideful people, it wouldn't exist as unified. You think about this idea of unity and a pursuit of unity within marriage. How many marriages are really unified if there's one or both of them are filled with pride? It's not happening. And so there's this unity of mind, a humble mind. So the humble mind is one who is grounded, one who understands who they are and who they are not. And they're in this together, so they're unified. And then the, the next couplet is that of sympathy. That is feeling with others. That's understanding what they're going through, giving them space to make mistakes. And in so doing, we also have a tender heart, one that has, is known for compassion, showing grace, leaning in when it's hard, leaning in when there's forgiveness necessary and needed. And then the middle one, which is kind of a link between the other ones. It threads outward to both unity of mind and a humble mind. It threads to sympathy and a tender heart. And that is one of brotherly love. It's family affection. It's seeing others as family, doing for them as family. Like if one of them is in harm's way, you do what it takes to care for them, walk with them, lean in love with them. I will tell you this, that we think brotherly affection and family, we have, you know, six kids and, and they have moments where they are each other's enemies. And then there are moments where nobody messes with them because they're locked in together. When I was a kid, I was last year of high school, I'd already accepted my call to ministry. I felt like God was doing a work in me. And uh, my sister was at the bus stop and there was this boy there that was really mean to her and punched her in the face. Instead of her going to my father or my mom, she went to me. Big brother, because big brother's going to do something. And I remember walking down the yard, taking a left to the bus stop. And on that way, God got a hold of my heart. And instead of me leaning in on this kid, um, showing him some different kind of affection, um, I shared the gospel with the kid. And then after school that day, I went to his house, told his parents about it, shared the gospel with them. My sister was ticked, to say the least that I didn't hit him. I, I say that to you because there are times that when at the table, because my sister has asthma, and um, when she eats, you hear it. And because I can hear her think about eating because I have this weird hearing, supersonic hearing, like, trust me, we had our moments where we weren't the best of friends. But it was me that she came to when she was hurt and needed care. This is the family affection. When we, one of us falls, we, we fall together. We walk with each other through this process. When one of us is going through loss, they're not by themselves because we have unity of mind. We have a humble mind. We lean in with one another. We show sympathy and compassion and tenderheartedness for the good of the other. 
This is the body of Christ. And here's what I want you to see in this. This is crazy to think that this is actually the blueprint for what we're going to see throughout the rest of this chapter. Is that the things uh, uh, that are related to that person showing a unity of mind, showing sympathy, brotherly love, a tenderheartedness and compassion to others, and a humble mind really does change how we see the rest of this chapter. So we pick up in verse 9. Here's a picture of how to flesh out being of one mind, being sympathetic, being loving in a family relationship, being tenderhearted, <clears throat> and being humble-minded. The, the first, from the jump, it says this in verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. You want to maintain unity. You want to maintain humility. You don't repay evil for evil. Anyone can do that. You don't repay reviling for reviling. He says, but on the contrary, in the opposite, instead of repaying, bless. In other words, find a way to benefit. Find a way to lift somebody else up. Find a way to so bless them, so help them grow, lift them and vault them from where they are to where they could be. Do this in such a way as to transform their life. And notice this detail for this. This type of response is what you've been called to. Now, this is the third time we've seen this picture of calling our God's will. The last time was talking about this you were called to follow in Christ's footsteps, which means as he suffered, you suffer. And so very similarly, this is the call, is that you would, on the contrary of, of returning pain and hardship, you find a way to bless them. You find a way to pray for them, to lift them up when they basically respond poorly to you. And then notice this detail at the end of that verse, that you may obtain blessing. It, it's kind of unique that it adds it there because a few weeks ago we dealt with this picture of Christ dying. It says that he was hung on a tree, which was very deliberate in Peter's writings. And Paul deals with this too. In Galatians 3.13, it says, For cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ became the curse for us. And that is quoting from Deuteronomy 21 an effort to let them know that Jesus took our curse so that we could experience his blessing because the opposite of being cursed is to be blessed. And what does it mean to be blessed? It means to have God's eyes focused on you, for his ears to hear you, for him to be near you, to, to feel his love. So with that in mind, we see in verse 10, the first word is the word for, which means why do we do what we hear in verse 9 is because this, and he quotes from Psalm 34, this is why we do it. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, this is what you do. If you desire to love life and see good days, then let him keep his tongue from evil. Keep your tongue from evil. And some of you are in here, well, like, I'm pretty good about not saying bad words. I, yeah, this is way beyond bad words. This is how you speak of other people. And you guys were like, man, I, I don't say anything mean out loud. Well, let's just use the tips of your fingers, okay? What do you do as far as posting in social media or through text? Let's talk about that. I mean, we got any thumb gangsters in here? Right? I was trying to be hip. That's my hip word of the day. Quote I'm at. Okay. But, but that's it. Like, keep his tongue from evil. Are you discouraging people? Again, from Mr. Foggle, my algebra teacher in high school, to be little is to be little. You'll get that later. Okay. 
Keep your tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit, which means you speak with honesty. If you want to love life and see good days, then you're honest. You're also one in verse 11, we see, let him turn away from evil. So if evil is this way, they repent. They have a repentant heart and lifestyle. They see evil this place, they turn from evil. And it says, and do good. It doesn't mean just turn away and repent, but do things in contrast to that, that show that you follow after Christ. Do good. This is in word and in deed. And then next, again, for those who love life and and want to see good days, they seek peace. Not only do they seek for peace, look for the way to end conflict, but they also pursue it. They chase after it. What do I got to do to make sure I have peace with my brother, with my sister? Again, maintaining that the blueprint is having unity of mind, having sympathy, having brotherly love, having a tender heart and a humble mind. This is what I want to do. And then notice this detail. Again, the word for, which means why. Why is that true? Well, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. This is a picture of those who've been blessed. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But notice this in contrast, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When it says face here, it means his wrath is against those who do evil. And then verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? He gives us like rhetorical question. And he thinks like, if you are excited and you, you have all this energy towards doing good, like who's going to harm you? And the answer is no one should, but that's not necessarily the case. Verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer... For righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, here's something I want to kind of really put in context. The suffering that we face here in America is way different than our brothers and sisters in other countries. Let's just be honest about that for a second. Our brothers and sisters in other countries face a way different kind of suffering. But your suffering is still real. The persecution you face is still real. Those who are thumb gangsters at you that, that aim to you know, discredit you or hurt you through social media are behind your back. That's still suffering. And the thing that you have in your responsibility is that you respond righteously. The ball's in your court. You serve peace. You pursue peace. You seek that out on your own. But notice, as we continue this, it says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't fear them or be troubled. But here's what you do instead. But in your hearts, again, this is a reminding. This is anchoring you down. Even though that around you is stormy and chaotic, it's a crazy sea of life. But in your hearts, anchored to him, honor Christ as Lord Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor him as as holy, Christ the Lord, which is implying something of him being your Lord, which means you submit to him. And then here's the detail with this. And this is one of my favorite parts of 1 Peter as a whole. It says this, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That, That part of the sentence really is 
something that we need to learn as followers of Jesus. As disciples of Christ, you need to know very well what it looks like to be prepared to make a defense. Like, why is your hope in Christ, really? Can you defend it? Do you know enough about God's word? Do you know enough about what he's done in saving you to share that with other people? Do you know enough? Some of us were like, well, I know, I know some basic stuff. And then, and then I could probably read something for you. You're like, where's that in the Bible? Well, I mean, you, know, you don't know it. And so we are disciples of Jesus Christ who make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God, which means we got to know his word. If we're going to follow after him, you need to know his word. It's imperative. And so here, always being prepared to make a defense. That word defense there is where we get the idea. Um, If you've heard of apologetics, right? Learning how to defend your faith. That word for defense in the Greek is apologia. That's where we get it from. It really is. To make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And you could just imagine this in their context. And even this in our context. Like, why in the world are you so filled with hope and joy in the midst of all the chaos around you? Like, how in the world can you respond that way? Well, it's because of him. It's because I'm anchored in him. So just keep in mind, like, this reason for our hope is is Christ the Lord is holy. He came to us. That's one reason for my hope, right? He suffered for us. He died for us. He rose. And all this is in 1 Peter. He rose for us. He reigns for us. He returns to us. And he reconciles us to God. We see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that he is our living hope, which means there's no expiration date to the hope we have in him. We, we also see that in verse 13 of chapter 1 that we need to have a mind that's prepared in anticipating this hope that's going to be revealed to us and be sober-minded in that hope. But what Peter is doing is he's quoting from a text that he's already quoted from around it already. In Isaiah chapter 8, he says this. Verse 12, he says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. That's a nudge, by the way. Take it or leave it. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary. Real quick, instead of letting the things of the world be the thing that sweeps you off your feet, you are so enamored, so blown away by the gospel of Jesus Christ encountering you right where you are that he sweeps you off your feet. And he will become a sanctuary, a safe place for you. But notice this in contrast, and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Very similar to what we've already covered in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, that he's a stone of stumbling for them. But he's our living stone. And then read with me in verse 16. Excuse me, I forgot this detail for verse 15. Always be prepared. To make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That defending that you're doing, do it with gentleness and respect. That's a little different than pointing your fingers at them. Okay? That's approaching them with gentleness and respect. 
And then verse 16, having a good conscience. Why would we have a good conscience? So that when we are slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When they slander you, you respond with a good conscience, with gentleness and respect, with great behavior in Christ. Notice that participle. So that they would be put to shame. What, is, what puts them to shame? The first thing that puts them to shame is that you don't fear them. They have no power or authority over you, and you know it, and they know it. The second thing is you honor Christ above them. That shames them. You have a defense of hope despite what goes on around you. You do this with gentleness and respect. All that does is continue to add shame to them. You respond with good behavior instead of returning evil for evil. And I love this. What happens is they are silenced. We see this earlier in 1 Peter as well. When they see that their only hope for their life is the only hope that you found for your life. It's in Christ. And what they see is their old way was shameful. And then let's look at verse 17 briefly. It says for and it says for again, so it means why. Why would we do this? Why would we do this? Because it is better to suffer for doing good. And notice this detail. If that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that be, should be God's will, than for doing evil. And again, here it is, verse 18. Why? Right? For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous. I want to pause there. I want you to see this. Christ also suffered once for sins. That's important to understand doctrinally, okay? I want you to see uh, another verse that kind of supports this, Hebrews 7, 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Sometimes there are some great meaning worship songs that include the thing that he would do it all again or he would do this a billion times more. Let me just tell you, based on God's word, that is not right. It's not accurate. I'll say it nicely. One time, the effectual work of the cross was one time. We need to know that. And this really is encouraging for us. Christ also suffer, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. I, I want you to just kind of resonate on that, the righteous for the unrighteous, him being righteous, us being unrighteous. And here's why, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This being... Basically, the righteous for the unrighteous, what happens there is there's forgiveness of sins. There's justification there. Justification means that you are declared right before God because of what he did. And you're free from his wrath. You're free from hell. You're free from guilt. And then notice this point that he might bring us to God. In Psalm 16, verse 11, the psalmist says it this way. He says, you make known to me the path of life. Lord, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I want to just let you know the best evidence that you are born again of God 
is that you want to be in his presence. And the opposite is also true. Proof that maybe you are not born again is that you don't want to be in his presence. And that word needs to like sit with us for a second. So let me read that verse again, verse 18, and it'll help us set up these challenging verses. If you've, been, if you've read ahead, then you've seen 19 and 20, you're like, oh, I wonder what he's going to say there. Me too. Okay. <laughs> verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, who were brought safely through the water. Now that I've read it, I'm going to move on. I'm just kidding. So I don't know if you've read that before and you're like, what in the world is happening? Very similar to a text we have in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, where it talks about Christ going um, and proclaiming. So do my best here, but just know that this is one of the verses. There's three primary views on it. Um, there are some theologians that, that you've heard of that say this is so confusing, but one of which gives an idea, and I'm going to try to help with his perspective. He says this, he says, in which he um, went and proclaimed, and what he does is he takes us back to chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, and he says that this, um, basically where 10 and 11 says this, it says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, these prophets, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. Okay, so the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets as they investigated this time and inquired this time carefully. What time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What this person would say is that the Spirit of Christ was in Noah during his time of building the ark that he was proclaiming to everybody around him. Those who would eventually be judged and found in their sin who rejected it. And this the reason why Peter adds this here, he's got two purposes, one of which is to illustrate God's mercy to those people, and the second is which he bridges the idea of the ark going through water, which leads us to verse 21, the idea of baptism, because that's a great segue. Anyways, verse 21 says this, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, I love that. Make sure to, to indicate it's not an external work. It's not you just following through motions. It's not you getting cleaner. And I, I want to pause here because I think it's important for you adults to hear something that the kids hear from time to time is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you, you've said, you know what, lying in the sand, I trust in Jesus. I'm following after him. One of the ways that you follow through in obedience is through baptism. It's a public profession where you are acknowledging on the outside what Christ has already done on the inside. And we're going to get to that in the text in a second. But I want you to understand that this is your way of declaring that publicly. And so if you have not been baptized, I want to invite you when we offer that um, in, in the near future, please, by all means, sign up and say, I want to be part of that story. And I know some of you guys are shy and all that stuff. Well, we're going to be offering a seminar called Building a Bridge where you can learn to get over things. Anyways, not true. But, um, but, but seriously, as a way of obedience. 
Continuing. I don't mean to be snarky. I'm just being silly. Not a removal of dirt from the body externally, but as an appeal. And this appeal here is a request by faith to God for a good conscience. It's an internal work where you understand your depravity, your need, your sinfulness, and that you need God to intersect and intercept you from your wickedness and transform you. And here's the thing that did it. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this was made possible. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the first thing that he overcame as we're gonna see in this list coming up. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, which by the way brings us to Hebrews chapter 10 where it says that he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, basically pleading our case before the Father. And he says he's there with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him which is so important for this section of scripture where we have enemies, people who want to do us harm, who do evil to us, who revile us. What we know in this case is if Jesus overcame death, he has angels, authorities, and powers subjected sitting under him, then those people who mean us harm are also under him. And so that means that we are overcomers because we're in him. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Christ in us is the hope of glory. You've been united with him. This picture here is is really an important picture for us to see. Again, I want to go back to just this question. Are you walking in newness of life? You know, that picture of baptism that I was mentioning earlier, you know, in Romans 6, 4, Paul writes it this way. He says, we were buried, therefore, um, with him by baptism into death. So we identify with him as we go into the water in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead. So we come out of the water, right, from the dead by the glory of, uh, glory of the Father. We too might walk in newness of life. You want to know what newness of life looks like for us in our playbook? It looks like having a unity of mind. checking our agendas at the door. It looks like us having sympathy for one another. Understanding, hey, look, I get it. It is hard. You're so right, it's hard. What you're walking through in your marriage is hard. What you're walking through in your divorce is hard. What what, what has been done to you, that is so hard. I get it. And you show this sympathy And this is brotherly love. You see them as family. You show this, really, this affection and then tenderheartedness, showing compassion, where you assume the best, you assume the good in others, and you show compassion when they bomb it because you've bombed it. And you show a humble mind. You're grounded. You understand your only hope is found in Christ, the same as them. Their only hope is found in Christ. I want to pray for us real quick with this in mind and then read Philippians 2 again. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would help us realize that our only hope is in you. If we're going to live out a life 
unified with our brothers and sisters. Our hope is in you and you alone. Lord God, if we're going to be sympathetic, if we're going to have a tender heart and show compassion, Lord God, it needs you. Father, if we're going to be humble, we need to be reminded of you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Can you imagine a marriage that did this? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Can you imagine a workplace that lived that out? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. Notice that. I love that detail. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No other name. His name is power. And so I do want to encourage you to live in such a way that that you are proclaiming that to those with addiction those that are suffering in a variety of ways, that you would lean in and remind them that you're given the name of Jesus. You're reminding the name of Jesus, not because of the five letters in English, but because of what those five letters in English represent. They represent God in the flesh. They represent a sinless life, dying for sinful people like me, like you. Church, it is our joy that we get to serve beside you. It is our joy that you know that we've been called to be unified in our mindset, humble in our mindset, tenderhearted, showing brotherly affection. It is our joy that we get to do this beside you. We love you. We are so grateful that we get to do this life with you. Go in Jesus' name. Have a great week.